incredibly honored to introduce our great guest preacher this morning, all the way from Atlanta. Uh, those of you may have seen him here last fall, I believe it was. Um, I know for me that was one of the most piercing messages that I've heard in a long time on fear. And if you haven't heard that, I, I highly recommend that you go online and listen to it. Uh, Ray Waters is with the Village Church in Atlanta. Uh, it's one of our sister progressive, fully inclusive churches down there. Last year, they just celebrated their 25th anniversary, which is incredible. And uh, Ray works very closely with Stan on uh, various things, including online ministries, reaching out to uh, LGBT people. Uh, we're just so incredibly thankful. Guys, and just keep in mind, was anybody up at 445 this morning? No. These two amazing people were in their car driving through that horrible weather to get here this morning. So please give Ray a warm welcome. You're awesome. Thank you, sir. You're great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, before I start, I want to say how uh, close, this is my wife, Jane, by the way, and she is the most wonderful partner in the world, and I'm so honored, and uh, she drove a lot this morning, and I was going over my notes, and uh, anyway, she put her earplugs in, every once in a while she'd start singing to Bonnie Ray. it's like, shh, be quiet just a minute, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think, but uh, we made it here, and I'm really glad to be here. I want to say a special thanks to the media guys and gals because we love watching your service, and uh, it means a lot to us. When, this, when it comes up, uh, we usually find it pretty quickly, and to hear the messages that have been preached here have been real highlights for us. Uh, Jennifer, your message a few weeks ago was amazing, and uh, loved it, and then Nathaniel, last week I was telling him, I was so nervous for him, because I remember my first talk, and uh, I was a young guy, just gone to college, and uh, they had set me up to preach in this little country church. I was in Texas, so I drove way out in the country, and I had, been, I had never put a sermon together, and I thought I knew what I was doing, and so I kind of just threw everything that I knew together, and I made this long thing, and I thought, if I do this, it's going to be probably 25 or 30 minutes, and probably it's going to kill. It's going to be great. And so then I got up, this little country church, I remember it said there was a little plaque out front that said Lyndon Johnson's grandfather had founded the church in the 1800s. It's a little small church, and I stood up to preach, and I lost all sense of time, and I was saying everything that I had said, and then I said it again because I thought I hadn't gone long enough, and so I just was kind of all over the place, and then I finished, and I sat down, and I could just tell everybody was embarrassed, and so I had to go home with a, a deacon and his wife for lunch. And uh, I said, how'd you think it went? And this is no lie, it's no exaggeration. He said, that's the worst sermon I have ever heard in my life. And uh, I had preached about eight minutes. That's all I did was eight minutes. And I was making stuff up. You know, you get to a point where you're just throwing stuff in that you hope is right. And uh, so anyway, Nathaniel, when I watched, um, this is a strange Sunday and it's kind of just a different... <laughs> different kind of Sunday. Um, but when I watched you, Nathaniel, last week, I just was so blessed. And you are so wise, and you are so kind, and uh, you just did a wonderful job. Did y'all enjoy last week? I thought it was really, really, really good. <clears throat> Again, thank y'all. I know y'all are in a just kind of a super interesting place right now as you look for senior pastor, and, and we pray for you guys. And uh, I just want you to know 
this is to me one of the great churches in the world and you deserve the very, very, very best. And uh, I can't imagine what's going to happen in your life as this church moves forward. You guys are unbelievable. Anyway, it's great to be here. So the story goes that Moses had been on the mountain in God's presence for 40 days and 40 nights. This had not been the first trip to meet God on Sinai. You'll remember at his previous meeting, Moses had come down with tablets that actually had the fingerprint, the story goes, of God on them. And Moses saw that his people, the Israelites, had decided that they would worship a golden calf. And so with those precious tablets in his hand, Moses threw them on the ground, breaking them. I've often wondered if he realized as they were going down, yikes, this is not probably a good thing to break. But this meeting on the mountain was different. God wasn't writing anything down. Moses was having to take copious notes, and he did. And he brought the tablets down the mountain to the people who this time were waiting anxiously for his return. If you have your Bible or your phone, we are reading from Exodus chapter 34. I want to read verses 29 and 30. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. Verse 33, when Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. Interesting story, I think. Now, reading from the New Testament, the Apostle Paul picks up the same story in his second letter to the Corinthians. And Paul, practicing Midrash, writes about why Moses covered his face with a veil. Listen to Paul's insight. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13, this is from the message. Moses wore a veil so the children of Israel wouldn't notice that the glory was fading away. And they didn't notice. They didn't notice it then, and they don't notice it now. They don't notice that there's nothing left behind that veil. And Paul would continue and say, that's the way it is with old time religion. Paul argues that however glorious its origins, religion based on laws cannot bring a long-lasting shine to a person's face. To Paul, the glory experienced by Moses had faded away, but now Paul would say there's a new way, a Jesus way, a spirit-led way, and that way transforms people into vessels overflowing with goodness, kindness, love. In other words, Paul would say, we can live lives radiant, beaming, glowing, luminous, incandescent, bright, even brilliant. And that shine in us doesn't have to ever dim. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Oh God, thank you for this day and for this place 
filled with so much love, so much acceptance, so much beauty, so much grace. May today be a day for people to discover joy and to know hope. May today be a day for some to discover the beauty of a chosen spiritual family. And may the readings of Scripture become a backdrop for a healthy conversation about life that truly shines. Open our minds and hearts to understand your heart. Teach us this day your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today I want to spend a few minutes talking about the fading glory of the old-time religion and the emerging glory and shine seen in fresh, progressive, emergent places just like this one that are popping up, uh, not as many as we would like, but popping up literally around the world. Had you met me in the 1970s or the 1980s, I would have told you I love the old-time religion. I started attending church in the early 70s when I was 13 years old. Mom and dad, I didn't know, were having some marital problems, and they decided we got to get the kids, the whole family, we got to go to church. And so my mom had somebody who worked with her who was going to a little country church. We lived in the suburbs, but a little country church, and we packed up and went to that church. Uh, I'd like to say mom and dad's marriage worked out and everything. They stayed together a few more years and that didn't work out, but we kind of became a church family. We loved church. For me, I loved everything about it. I remember the first Sunday that I went, I wore, got a stupid picture of this. I was wearing a red jacket and a red bow tie and I can't believe how corny I looked, but this girl came up to me and she was in the youth choir and she said, we meet at five o'clock on Sunday afternoons, would you like to come and would you consider being a youth choir? And just being accepted was like the coolest thing in the world to me. And I went that afternoon at five o'clock and I got in the youth choir and I discovered that I liked to to sing. And I I just loved that little country church. Preacher was very country, he was uneducated, but I loved him. His name was Preacher Bill, Bill Foster. He wore a suit on Sundays, but the rest of the time he was in overalls. If you ever saw him, he was in overalls. We'd laugh at him sometimes because when he would try to read the scripture, this is bad, but sometimes he'd get all twisted up because he wasn't a great reader, but he was a good-hearted man, really good-hearted man. On work, when you at school got to pick to go to work with somebody, from the time I was 13, every year I said, I want to go to work with a preacher. I liked doing that, being with him. I especially liked music in church, and I felt secure in my decision to follow Jesus. I liked that I was an insider. I liked it so much that when I was 16 years old, I felt this little nudge inside of me that said, I think I'm supposed to be a preacher myself. Had you met me back in those days, you might have said, that boy has a certain shine about him. I went to college and graduate school. I pastored three traditional Southern Baptist churches. And then 26 years ago, I started an interdenominational church just outside of Atlanta called The Village. But over time, what once had been a bright light inside of me began to dim. Church seemed to be more about what you were against than what you were for. I sensed less and less empathy for people, and this bothered me. It seemed like it was more about believing a set of propositional truths than it was really about walking a vibrant spiritual journey. I began to feel a little bit like Moses with the veil over my face. It's hard to stand up in front of people when you feel that the light has gone out. 
Over time, I wondered what I was going to do. wondered if I was even going to stay in the church. I really didn't know. Thankfully, during that time, some wonderful people crossed my path. Some through personal contacts and some through just books they had written. People that you know, they've been here. Tony and Peggy Campolo, I had the privilege of spending a few days with them. And Peggy Campolo just kind of changed my life, the way she talked about things. Phyllis Tickle, I began to read her works. I know she spoke here a long time ago. Rob Bell, I had never listened to anybody like him before. and I felt my heart opening up in a way that was different. Brian McLaren, his books challenged me. Richard Rohr was amazing, a depth I didn't know possible. And then this guy named Stan Mitchell, you might have heard of him, but I began to listen to him and began to discover that there was something alive out there. That even though my life, the old-fashioned way that I knew was dimming, there was a light that I needed to explore. As they spoke about faith, it seemed to resonate deep inside of me. It seemed real. It seemed robust. It was the turning on for me of a genuine love light inside of me. I'm so glad that I discovered there was a beautiful other way. Now, what I want to do is I want to spend just a few minutes with you, and I want to talk to you about the old kind of religion that to me represents all of that fading light, all of that darkness that seems to be so uninspiring to me now. And I want to talk to you about a newer way that we all are understanding together that represents a light that burns inside of us that is really transformational. A few thoughts. A religion that focuses on believing right dogma above all else ultimately loses its radiance. The shine comes when following Jesus becomes a way of life. We had a lady who used to go to our church. I really like this lady. But she believed that her job, she was the middle school girl's teacher. Her job was to cram so much Bible knowledge into these girls. That was the main thing. And most especially, she wanted them to understand fully the Trinity. I would try to tell this lady that I am 56 years old. This was several years ago, so I was, I was a little younger. But I said, I've been to college and graduate school, and I don't understand the Trinity. Why is that so important to you that someone would understand that? She never could. She never would back down on that. She didn't believe these girls were going to go to heaven if they didn't fully understand the Trinity. And I, I would say, Beth, that's so crazy. That's not what this is about. Tertullian's the one that articulated the Trinity in the third century when Jesus was walking around. Nobody was thinking about the Trinity. Why is this so important to you? But it was. I've seen churches that have made it all about the Romans road or making sure that you're baptized in the proper method, you know, by immersion, we thought as Baptists. And we, that became a big deal. We, we knew who, who was in and who was out by who answered the questions that we asked the right way or how the world was going to come to an end. That was a big deal in my background. They had the book of Revelation all figured out and they had it figured out that whole Left Behind series. Those were written, that was written for my people. They all got into that. Our worship leader swears to me he's got a friend who's so into that, he's got left behind tattooed on his left behind. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know if that's true or not, but I just think it could be, you know, it could be. But it was all about dogma, it was all about answers to questions, it was all about being right. There was no mystery, I love that y'all talk about mystery here, it's like, 
Why the need to be so right? If you can explain it and understand it, it probably is not God. So I began to realize that that represented for me death. What represented to me life was people who really were on a journey. I began to feel more connected, honestly. I began to feel more connected with people who did not share our common beliefs, but who cared for the poor, who were willing to fight for those who were bullied, than I did hanging out with the people in our church that were all about right beliefs and didn't give a rip about helping anybody on this journey. This isn't political. Please don't hear it political, but I like what Cory Booker said, United States Senator from New Jersey. He said, I'll take an atheist who serves over a person who prays to God, preaches to God, celebrates God, but fails to serve mankind. And I'm with him. I would much prefer to hang out with atheists, and I do. And I found them to be delightful and wonderful in every way. This past Sunday, we had baptism at our church. We had a 15-year-old girl who had called me a couple of weeks ago. She's been coming to our church for the last six or seven years. And she said, Pastor Ray, I really want to follow Jesus. Can I be baptized? I said, oh my gosh, that would be beautiful. So I baptized her. Then we had another lady who had had a really rough life. And uh, she had had some uh, issues and, and it, it, a lot of addiction kind of stuff. And her son had committed suicide a couple of years ago. It was really hard. But she had reached out to me and she said, I really want to follow Jesus. And I really think now's the time. Would you baptize me? I said, sure. And then there was another lady in our church, and she is one of mine and Jane's best friends. Uh, she's a beautiful lady. I did her same-sex wedding about five years ago, and she's, she runs one of our cameras, and sometimes I'll stand in the back, and I'll just see her with her hands up in the air, and she's supposed to be running the camera. I guess you don't have to hold the camera all the time. I, get, I don't know, but I'm thinking, I hope she knows what she's doing, but she'll have both hands up in the air. She'll just be praising the Lord, and she is a paramedic and she is a beautiful mom and she loves God and she could care less if someone has a literal reading of Genesis or whether they believe baptism is by immersion or by sprinkling or whether the rapture comes before that she could care less she just knows she loves God she knows that she goes to a church where everybody is welcome and her life has been beautiful just a beautiful thing so do the baptism, and uh, we do something. I started doing it 26 years ago and never seen it anywhere else, but we do the baptism, and when they come up, I, uh, I touch salt with my finger, and they stick their tongue out, and I just touch their tongue, and I say, Jesus said, you're, you're the salt of the earth. And then I take a candle, and I light the candle, and I say, and he says, you, you're the light of the world. Let your light shine. And everybody cheers, and they get out of the pool, the next person gets in. But I have found that focusing on those things, that's life. That's a shine. That's, that's brilliance. That's something that you're proud to be a part of, something that is truly beautiful and good. Uh, arguing about dogma seems to be a waste of time. Second thing I want to say is this, fear-based religion Fear-based religion ultimately leads to darkness. Radiance comes when we understand we are accepted and loved by God. I was on a fear path for a while. I was a little boy in the 1960s, and I remember when Martin Luther King Jr. was killed and when Robert Kennedy was killed, and that was my first big kind of awakening that death is real and all the cartoons got preempted because it was news all the time. And I just remember getting very 
afraid as a kid. So then I become a young teenager. And as a young teenager, the church taught that if you didn't know Jesus, you would go to hell. But if you prayed the prayer, then you were, you were safe. And so the night came, and I remember the Sunday night service. I went to the front, and I prayed, and I cried, and I was so happy that I didn't have to be afraid anymore. And I wasn't afraid anymore about dying because Baptists, I mean, they teach if you, you pray the prayer, it doesn't matter what you do. From that moment on, you're good. You can do anything. You're good. And so that drilled into my head. It's like, well, this is the coolest thing in the world. And um, so I was, on, I was on that page. But then I began to be very fearful for my friends who um, weren't on our team yet, weren't in our church. And then I became a preacher. And uh, this is no joke. The first years, I began to pastor when I was 19, which sounds crazy, but a country Baptist church in Rosenberg, Texas, Second Baptist Church, Rosenberg, issued a call for me to be their pastor at 19. I so should not have been anybody's pastor at 19. But I would stay up almost every Saturday night because I would be so worried that I was going to screw it up and somebody was going to come and miss out on the message and then they were going to drive out and have a wreck and they were going to be separated forever from God and it was going to be me. And that seems so crazy now. I look and I think, God, you're a smarter man than that. But it's kind of the way I was programmed, kind of what I knew. Then things began to click for me. I don't know, 15 years ago, maybe. That idea that God is love, not God is loving, but that, no, the very essence of God is love. That, that's a synonym for God, love. It's a beautiful thing. The idea in the scripture that perfect love cast out fear how can you be in the presence of love and be afraid or the idea that Jesus said if you've seen me you've seen the father and then Jesus would say if someone hurts you if someone does something evil towards you you don't return evil back you return good and I'm thinking is that is he saying that that is like what God, that God would do this better than us, right? God would be the expert at this. And he says, when someone has hurt you, you forgive them over and over and over again. You forgive them. It's like, wow, he's telling us this. Does that mean that God is like this? Amazing. I used to think that we were the insiders, of course, and everybody else were the outsiders, and they didn't know God. They didn't have God. They were actually separate from God. You've grew up, many of you, just like that, separate from God. I remember one day in my office sitting around and thinking, if God is omnipresent, and I remember studying that, we were kind of sure on that, doesn't that mean he's everywhere? Doesn't that mean God is everywhere? And doesn't the Bible say that we exist in God? All of us exist in God? How, how can they be separate from God if God is everywhere? And then I remembered what the psalmist said, when I'm on the mountaintop, God is there. And when I'm in the valley, God is there. And when I even lay in my grave in Sheol, God is there. I can't get away from God. So my life began to change. A few weeks ago, a young guy had called and he had a podcast. He asked me if he could interview me. I said, sure, I didn't really know what this was for. So when he starts talking, we're on this recording I realized that he has a horrible view of church, has a horrible view of, of Christianity. And I'm thinking, I should have researched this probably. This is, not, this is not good. But we began to talk, 
and all of his defenses came down because I think I so didn't sound like what he thought I was going to sound like. So we really began to connect. And then he said, he said, can I ask you something? He said, I, I see how you've gone through this progression, but what about hell? Do you ever worry that maybe you or the people that you've led are going to go to hell? And I said, I, I don't mean to, I'm not trying to sound arrogant. Please don't hear this as arrogant. But that thought is so beyond my wildest I can't even imagine that thought. I love my wife. I cannot imagine saying to her, I love you so much, but if you don't love me, I'm going to strangle you and burn you forever. I cannot imagine that transaction taking place. No, I love her. I love my sons. They're my best friends on the planet, 38 and 35. My youngest son had a little detour in his younger college years uh, with some addiction issues. And I remember being hurt for him. I remember being worried, so worried for him. But my love for him never wavered, never wavered. And I just think God is that way. A fading religion is one that makes the main thing following a behavior code. And I'm realizing more and more the shine the shine, the shine comes when we decide to make a difference in the world. Not a behavior code, not trying to make sure. When I grew up, it was, the, honestly, the big thing in our church was don't drink and don't cuss. That was the big thing. You can do most everything else, but don't drink and don't cuss. But I began to study and realize Jesus would say, Lech Hakarai, come, follow me. And he was saying what Rabbi said. He was saying, come and learn from me. See the world the way I see the world. Practice life the way I practice life. Jesus' first sermon had him saying very clearly, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, re proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free. Jesus said, this is what my life is about. Jesus was all about shaking up social norms. He rejected racism and sexism. See him meeting with a Samaritan woman that turned everyone on their ear. He dignified second-class citizens. Listen to him tell the beautiful story of the man wounded on the side of the street and then say to everyone shocked, the only one that gave a rip about him was the person that you hold in contempt, the Samaritan he risked his reputation to be with people who were social outcasts, see him with the drunkards and the prostitutes. He challenged unjust behavior. He confronted the spiritually arrogant. He reordered the political world. He advocated for the poor. His life's mission was to release anyone who was oppressed. He taught very clearly whatever you would like done to you, you need to do it unto others. And then in Matthew 25, he gave us the litmus test for what worthwhile religion should be like when he said, I was hungry, thirsty, a stranger, naked, sick, and in prison, and you reached out to me, and they said, when? And he said, when you did it unto the least of these, you did it unto me. The early church understood that. The early Christians were activists. Oh, as much as they could be in the Roman Empire, but they were activists. They really tried to help people. They cared for the poor. They cared for the sick. They rescued children who were abandoned. They were known for their compassion and their kindness. 
Let me give you a little church history, and some of you are very, very smart. Some of you have been around a long time, and you know this stuff. If you would go back into the 19th and early parts of the 20th century, mainline churches were very, very active. When you look at slavery and the abolitionist movement, those kind of things, there were wonderful Christian people who were fighting for freedoms for people. It was a beautiful thing. But in the early 20th century, a group of church people raised up and said, you're getting the story wrong. We're only supposed to be worried about getting people saved. We're not supposed to be trying to rescue people from their condition. And they were called fundamentalists. They said social justice is not our job. And that group began to grow. And that group grew and grew and grew. They later had a name change to evangelicals. And those are the people I came from. I never heard a sermon ever growing up on racial reconciliation. And I lived in the South. I never heard a sermon growing up ever about caring for the poor. It was not on my radar at all. The thought of fighting for people who are marginalized, that never crossed our mind. We just got together and sang some good hand-clapping music and heard a sermon about getting saved and hopefully somebody got saved. And then we go to Shoney's and we'd eat supper after it was done. That's what we did. That was all we did. But it's important for us as a church. It's important for you. And I so admire you guys. I follow what you guys do. I follow the things that mean a lot to you. I love that you do care about the poor. Even though this is kind of an affluent part of town, I know that you care about the poor. There's over 2,000 verses of Scripture that call upon us to respond to the needs of the poor. Father Gregory Boyle said this, and I love this, compassion starts when we stand in awe at what the poor have to carry rather than in judgment in how they carry it. In my background, if we ever talked about the poor, it was to put them down because they didn't carry the weight the way we thought they should carry it. We should be fighting for women. My wife, we're, we didn't know about this whole lifestyle thing that, you know, we didn't know about that. If you went back with us 10 years ago, we didn't know. Now my wife's got these t-shirts she wears when she goes down and marches around the Capitol and fights for women's rights. And I said, honey, why are you so into that? And she says, because we have two granddaughters and I want them one day to know that their Mimi fought for a better way for them. I said, go for it. Immigrants. I grew up in a wonderful, my dad was very progressive. My dad, from my earliest childhood, when we would see uh, someone from Mexico working, my dad would say, see that man? He came here because he wanted to make a better way for his family. And he said, I just want you to know, if it meant swimming across a river or walking across a desert, I hope I would be as good for you. And so I grew up in a family that held immigrants in high esteem. And I want to fight for immigrants now. I want to stand with them. Of course, African-Americans. Again, I had pastored, my church was traditionally a white church in the suburbs until we moved 10 years ago into Atlanta. And as we moved into Atlanta, our church now is much more diverse. But I never really knew the plight of African-Americans as it related to uh, sent to prison more for the same crime, you know, much d more stringent sentencing than uh, happens for us. I, I didn't know about those things. My head was in the sand, I guess. But I now realize I've got to fight for them. I've got to stand with them. 
LGBTQI. You are never more like God than when you identify with and help alleviate the suffering for the poor and you stand up for the underdog. And you know what? I didn't even know that was a part of being a Christ follower. I didn't even know it was a big deal at all. But as I've discovered the opportunities that are there for you and I to do that, I have discovered it makes me shine. Something inside said, this is right. This is good. I remember I used to think the king, I used to think about civil rights times and I would think, God, we missed our window. I wish I could have been around back then. And I wonder if I would have been somebody who would have stood up. And then I realized, dumb, dumb, it's still going on now. Are you willing to stand up? And you guys are. Hey, let me, let me tell you something real quickly. I did a series not long ago on happiness. And I know this sounds lightweight and corny probably to you. But this series, we tried to look at things that Jesus said makes your life wonderful and then we try to look at science and say, does science confirm these things? It was really interesting. One of the first things I remembered learning was that science says that 50% of your happiness level is basically DNA. So if you're basically a happy person, it's thank your mom, thank your dad. You're just kind of born that way. If you're kind of a little more ego or whatever, then that's just the way you were born. It's a DNA thing. 40 or, or 10% are circumstances, win the lottery, you feel better, you get sick, you feel worse. But 40% determined by thoughts, actions, and attitudes. But actually doing certain things can contribute to that 40% of feeling happier. So that, that was the basic understanding of the, of the series. And we talked about all kinds of things. Gratitude, big deal towards happiness, savoring, learning to savor, big deal. Kindness, social connectedness, um, temperance, uh, transcendence. Courage, courage, showing courage is a real strong help towards happiness, but then courage only focused on you, not so much, but courage that then turns to justice is a huge contributor to happiness. See the beam in the face of the people who have found a cause that they're willing to fight for. John Lewis is our congressman in Atlanta. Do y'all know John Lewis? Do y'all know who I'm talking about? We love John Lewis. Um, we've been at several parties with him. He's always nice. He told me the last time I saw him, which was just a few weeks ago, he said, I'm going to come preach at your church. And if so, that will be the biggest deal in the world to me ever. But John Lewis, uh, 2001, uh, won the John F. Kennedy Profiling Courage Award. And in his acceptance speech, he said this, courage is a reflection of the heart. It's a reflection of something deep within the man or woman or even child who must resist and must defy an authority that is morally wrong. Courage makes us march on despite fear and doubt on the road toward justice. Courage is not heroic, but as necessary as birds need wings to fly. Courage is not rooted in reason, but rather courage comes from a divine purpose to make things right. And I'm reminded of Isaiah, which says, if you spend yourself in behalf of the hungry and you satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. In other words, I think Isaiah is saying, when you care for people and you fight for people and you do what is right, you'll glow. Let me move quickly. Another learning, a religion that discriminates against a person's race or sexual orientation or gender identity is in darkness. It is in darkness. Radiance comes when we build bigger tables to include every wonderful, diverse person we know. And you know that here. I learned when as, as an adult that when I was in my little country church, there had been a day when a black family had shown up. And when that black family showed up, deacons met them at the back door and said, this is not a place for you. Go find a church 
where you'll fit in. I did not know that as a kid. I realized that as an adult. Made me remember a story that I'd heard about a, a black man that tried to get into a church in the South, and they said, no, you can't come here. And so he went, and he was sitting by the river, and he was really, really sad, and Jesus appeared to him and said, what's wrong? And he said, well, I tried to get into the church, and they wouldn't let me in the church. And Jesus said, don't sweat it. I've been trying to get in that church for 30 years. They won't let me in either. They won't let me in either. I love that this is an everybody church. I love that this is an everybody church. I love that this is an everybody church. We had a meeting not long ago, several LGBTQ people were in our home, and they said, we don't want a gay church. We want an everybody church. I remember when all of this was first happening for Jane and me, we talked about the fact that uh, we wanted our grandkids to grow up in a church where it was as normal to see all different beautiful types of people just loving each other and, and caring about each other and being honest and loving with each other. And that's what we've experienced, and I'm so proud. I'm so proud. People sometimes say, why do you mention LGBTQ all the time? Because that is a group that has been, they've been pointed out and they have, they have had the door shut in their face too much. And so if you come to our church, you'll hear every Sunday me say something, something. Because I just want, if there's that one person who's coming for the very first time, I want them to hear, this is a safe place. This is a safe place. Anyway, finally, divine glow comes when we realize life will be tough sometimes. But if we don't quit and we keep loving, we will see a better world for all people and we will know we played a part, just a part in this beautiful transformation. I took Stan last week to, uh, Nina was with us and I took him to Ebenezer Baptist Church. He had never been. We sat in the church and they've got a tape recording of Dr. King preaching and so it's real surreal. The church is not much bigger than this space right here. It's not a big church. Stan was sitting behind me and I heard what sounded to me like tears. As we walked out, I said, is that you? He's kind of tough. He's like, yeah, yeah, it's me. I'm sorry. So, you know, he, he didn't want to talk about it. But later that afternoon, we did talk about it. We talked about what it must have been like. We talked about a little bit of the hard time that we get. Just a little bit. I mean, it's nothing, nothing compared. And we talked about how we would never, ever want to go back. This is so much more beautiful. Well, there's one more time in the Bible when this glow thing happens, and it's the, uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus is standing with Peter, James, and John, and suddenly they see him glowing. And what appears to be with him is Elijah and Moses, and they can't believe it. And then the two, Moses and Elijah, disappear and Peter gets this great plan. Let's build three churches up here. This will be so cool. And this voice from heaven booms out and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Grace Point, I know you're listening to God. And I'm so proud, so proud to be on this journey with you. Would you bow your heads, please? God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for this beautiful group of people who are radiant to me because they have moved away from death, religion that is death, and they have moved into spirituality that is beautiful and true 
and inclusive and kind and loving and totally aware of mystery. And they just all seem to shine. I pray for every person here. And if there's one who maybe they're not feeling it today, I pray they'll just get that you love them. And this place loves them. And that they can have hope. Thank you again for this day. In Christ's name. Thank you, Ray.